Okay, if you would take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Uh, I'll do a, a quick review uh, of verses 18 and following. I won't go into much detail because we did all that last week. And then we'll continue to move our way through, through this letter. So beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So again, briefly, we know that all men, every single person who's ever lived, every person who ever will live, and every person who's alive today, every person uh, that exists, whether that person calls themselves an atheist or an agnostic, whether they are of another religion, no matter who they are, God tells us that all of these individuals, every single person, even those who don't have a Bible, know that God does exist. And they know that God is angry about sin. That he's angry about sin in general. That, that man ignores him and that man does things that are wrong. And not only does man know these things about that God exists and that God is angry about these things and that God is going to judge them, but man then suppresses, he takes action on this knowledge and he suppresses that truth so that he doesn't think about it or so that, so that he doesn't have to think about it. And again, verse 19 reiterates that what may be known of God is manifest in us because God has shown it to us. So God has taken on the responsibility, said that he's done this, so it's not left up to us to guess. Uh, God has placed within us this, this basic understanding that there is a divine higher power, but not just a higher power in a generic sense, but a divine person, that, that God does exist. So then going on in verse 20, he then explains how it is that God has shown this to mankind. And verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So here, verse 20 then says that since creation, since that time, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. Well, what invisible attributes is he talking about? Well, two things. That God is powerful, that he has eternal power, and that he is divine, meaning he should be worshipped. That's really what, what they're getting at there. And this is so clear to all men that all men then are without excuse. No one can ever say to God, when they stand before God, I did not know, or I just didn't have enough evidence that you existed. Now, in part, many have stated, and I believe that they're correct, that this intuitiveness that we have uh, about there being this divine being that exists, that there's a powerful being, a God that exists, that that explains man's natural desire to want to worship. So what many people have said, when you look at anthropology, and you look back in the past, you see that wherever man is, there's always a religious side to man. And we see this in various tribes. We see this in various um, ethnicities. We, we see various religions. Uh, we'll get to a moment where these religions come from. But that desire to, to and, and, and drive to worship something to believe that a being is greater than we are. Well, that comes from this. Now, this knowledge that we have, 
this manifestation of God that, that he is powerful and that he is divine and should be worshipped, even that knowledge has been corrupted by our sin. You know, we, we take this truth, not only do we suppress the truth, but because we are corrupt because of our sin, we then kind of twist it. And so we, we twist it and we move away from this idea of there being one true God and we move into worshiping other things, which we're going to see in a moment. It all has to do with sin and what sin does to us. Remember this, and I think Romans will make this clear, and we'll see this here in chapter 1 and also in the following chapters, that all men, and again, this we're talking about mankind, all men are affected by sin, by the curse of sin. We've all been corrupted by sin. We've been corrupted in, in at least two ways that affects the whole being. So the first way would be this. We think immoral things. You know, we think about getting revenge on an individual who has maybe um, embarrassed us or maybe they, they got one over on us or they made a better deal than we did or whatever the case may happen to be. We, you know, we, we want revenge. We may daydream about revenge. We may think about, you know, how we would get them back or we may even follow through and cause them bodily harm or lie about them or whatever the case may happen to be. So because sin corrupts us, you know, we, we do those things. We want, we want to do those things. And so that, that twist, uh, that, that, that's a twist on the way that we think. But then it's not only what we think about that's corrupted, even the way we think is corrupted. Now, what I mean by that is God has made us in his image. And so we have the ability to think in terms of truth. We have the ability to think in terms of what is logic and what is logical. We're able to reason. Uh, we're able to determine the truth in things, come to the right conclusions. Uh, that's the mind that God has given us. But the way that we think has also been corrupted by sin so that we are at times dishonest. So I may, I may be able to reason out the truth. And let's say that uh, you have made, a, you and I are having a discussion, you've made a point. Let's say the point that you've made is, is correct. And I can see as I think it through quickly that it's, it's reasonable, that it's, it's logical. Maybe, even, maybe you've even disproved my point in, in whatever it is that we're discussing. And so then I... Because, because of, of the corruption of sin, I'm not going to admit that. I may twist what you say. I may repeat what you said and twist it so that it comes out wrong and say, well, what you've said is incorrect. Or I may ignore what you've said. Or I may begin to, to uh, attack you. I may say, well, you're just an idiot. Or, you know, you made a good point, but at least I'm not like you. You let your children starve or you are brainwashing your children or you mistreat your wife. In other words, what happens is, is I, I can't win the argument. So I, I begin to attack you. That happens all the time. We see that in the press and the media and politics. We see that in all kinds of debates that that happens constantly where an individual will begin to attack the other, the other person. And so it's no longer in the realm of ideas. So the main thing I'm getting at is that when it comes to the corruption of sin, it not only affects what we think about, but it affects the way that we think. So that's really important. That's why we cannot trust ourselves. We cannot trust our own reasoning. That's why we need the Bible to, to help us through. We need propositional truth 
to guide and direct us, to help ask those questions, to, to steer us, to make sure we're going down the right path. When I say that we need the Bible, again, remember that we're not talking about uh, a book that's going to hem us in and is being used as a tool to brainwash us. God is not in the business of brainwashing anybody. God desires that we think openly, that we think clearly, that we think logically. The Bible is a great guide because the Bible is truth. And a person can examine that and they can look at that. They can see uh, that that's what that is. And so that God is given to that as a moral guide, as a moral compass, as well as something that points out our wrongdoing and, our, and, and the need that we have for salvation because it reveals to us what sin has done to us and the ways that we sin. So there's a lot going on here in these verses, a lot of things for us to kind of think about as we kind of move our way through this description of man. That's really what's going on. God is describing man. He's describing man after the fall. Adam and Eve have sinned, and this is the way we are. The way we are is, is that we, we suppress the truth. Even though we suppress the truth, it tells us that God has revealed himself to us. We need God. We need God to save us, but we suppress that truth. Uh, we want to pretend that we, that we don't know that God exists or pretend that he doesn't exist. We want to be left to ourselves to get involved in unrighteousness and the things that he's talked about so far. So moving on then, again, so we have no excuse. We, can, we can't blame anybody but ourselves. So verse 21, it says this, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So once again, there's a statement in here where God is reiterating that man knows that God exists. God is making it very clear here as to what people know. You and I can make assumptions about people and what we think they know. And even though we may be right, even a lot of times, we can never, I guess to a degree, be 100% certain until that person admits, yes, that is the way that I'm thinking or I have thought that. But when God says man knows something, then it, we, we can take that to the bank. We know whether that person admits it or not doesn't matter. We know that this is right and, and they know something. So here in verse 21, uh, as Paul writes, he just says, all, because although they knew God, so they, they know God, uh, they did not glorify him as God. So again, we're back to that idea that man is without excuse. God, uh, man knows that God is, has eternal power and is divine. He, he deserves to be worshipped. And even though man knows this, he refuses to glorify God as God. So again, there's that suppression. Uh, there is that, uh, that is again, ungodliness. Remember, ungodliness is to live your life as if God is unimportant. Or to live your life as if God doesn't matter. Or to live your life as if God doesn't even exist. So there's a refusal there to glorify God. And what goes along with that is that God, because he is such a unique being, a, a special being, and he's the one that everything comes from, all life comes from God, and all life is sustained by God. Because he is God, the right and natural thing for us to do is to glorify him, to comment we are to bring attention 
to who he is. We want to praise him. We want to magnify his name, which is to magnify who he is and what he's done. And man refuses to do that. Man refuses to be grateful and thankful and to and to lift God up as being this wonderful, benevolent being that he is. Man, again, lives in rebellion. And so that's, that's another sin that man is committing. So, and we see, as you look around the world, this is the norm for more and more people. They don't glorify God. God is not in their conversation. God is not in their thinking. God is not uh, in their decision-making. God is not a factor in their lives. And that's what this is talking about. So again, 21, uh, Romans 1, 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. So I already mentioned that, but it, not only did, did they not glorify God, but they're not grateful to God. It's, it's a, it would be a natural thing to be grateful to the one who's given you life and who's given you breath and who's given you a home. The Bible says that every good thing that we have comes from God, our families, our loved ones. Uh, where we live, the freedoms that we enjoy. All those things are from God. He is the one who is to be uh, thanked. We are to thank him for that. So to not be thankful and to not thank him is wrong. It's morally wrong and it's sinful. And again, mankind in general is guilty of this. Then it says, but, so not only is man not thankful, but then on the other hand, man became futile in their thoughts. So that then means, that's back to that thinking thing. So the idea there is, is that our thinking became empty. We became empty-headed people. Uh, we began to pursue the wrong things in life. For example, it's not wrong to desire pleasure, but we began to pursue pleasure as if that was the ultimate. And it can never be the ultimate. So we were empty-headed in our thinking. Man also became much more shallow in his thinking. To this degree... That man began to, instead of looking to God and thinking in terms of eternity, man began to think only about the here and now and the immediate. All that matters is what's, what is today. All that matters is what is tomorrow and nothing else. And so as a result, man became empty-headed. Empty-headed. He, he didn't know how to think. He didn't know how to plan. It doesn't mean that man is unable to build homes and build cities and build bridges. And all. Man can do all those things. But he wasn't thinking in terms of eternity. You know, uh, when it came to his relationships with people, he was only thinking in terms of self-gratification. What can I get out of this person today? What can I get out of this person for this year? And then when I'm done with them, I can throw them away. That doesn't mean every single human being has, does this in every single uh, relationship, but this does describe a majority of people. So if you, if you have a list of 100 things that man does wrong, it doesn't mean that everybody does all 100 things. However, we all do 20 or 30 or 40 of them. And so we're all guilty then of these things. When I say in general, some of us are guilty of the specific things we talk about tonight. Others may not be guilty of those specific things. But what we talk about next week, you may be guilty of. So then he goes on and says that not only were, did they become futile in their, um, in their thoughts, it says their foolish hearts were darkened. So he's calling us a fool. Now, now in the Bible, to be foolish or to be a fool is a very strong term. It's a term that's normally used for an individual who is not thinking, meaning he's not thinking well, he's not thinking logically. And it's also used of an individual who doesn't believe in God. So that person doesn't acknowledge God. He's not thinking in, in terms of God. His paradigm 
is not that God exists and we exist for his glory and we should live in obedience to what he says because it's for our good and this is how I'm to live and this is the decisions I'm to make. We're not thinking that way. And so this person is foolish. So he says here with this is this empty headed person then uh, their hearts are darkened. So the word heart here is talking really about the whole inward man. It's talking about where the thinking and the emotions are in the man. That's what's meant by heart. Uh, is actually three things. It's the it's the it's the mind, it is the emotions, and it's the will. So what he's saying here is that because man now is living in this rebellion to God, because he is for himself successfully suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So he's successfully suppressing it. Doesn't mean that his life is successful, but he is succeeding and be able to being able to suppress these ideas so he doesn't have to deal with them or think about them then he's, he's going to be very negatively affected in the way that he thinks as well as what he thinks about. And uh, he is going to be all over the place emotionally. He's, he's not going to be able to control his emotions. He will be able to control his emotions at times, but he won't be able to control them. In fact, or he might get to the point that he can control them so much he becomes a sociopath and he has no emotions. And that's, that's a bad thing as well. But he's also affected by his will. In other words, what he what he decides to do, what he chooses to do, uh, is corrupted. So the whole man is deeply affected, has been deeply affected by the fall. Remember, we talked about last week the meta-narrative. That is, what is the story? And when I say story, I mean what is the true historical record of an event that explains the way the world is and the way the world functions? So our meta-narrative is given to us really in the first six, eight chapters of the book of Genesis. The main idea being there that Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve which represented all of mankind, sinned, rebelled against God, and brought sin into the world, and God kicked him out of the garden and cursed man. So, that's, so that explains to us uh, why there's death. That explains to us why there's evil in the world, why there's natural disasters, why there is war. It explains why we rebel against God even today. It explains why we don't get along with nature. It explains why we don't get along with each other. It also explains why we have inner turmoil, uh, whether it's depression, anxiety, uh, those types of things. Why, why, you know, that continues to be a growing problem in our society. Why is it that way? Well, it's, it's not, these things don't fall from the sky. It, you know, depression is not in the air and it falls on you or anxiety is in the air and it just kind of falls on you like a virus. That's not what takes place. As man lives his life apart from God, he has, you know, that spiritual aspect of his life is missing. So he's trying to deal with life on his own, in his own strength. Some are able to do fairly well. Many are not. And so their minds begin to erode. And as a result, they, they, you know, the depression begins to overwhelm them or anxiety begins to overwhelm them. Why is that? Because they're not depending upon God. Now, that doesn't mean if you're a Christian, you'll never experience those things. I do think that you will experience those things or you can from time to time, but they should never become life-dominating issues. If, if we're growing as believers, we may even struggle. Okay, there, there may be a battle, let's say, with depression off and on for years. But it doesn't have to be a life-dominating issue to where it's the depression that determines how you live, how you make decisions, and what decisions you make. 
you still have the ability, even in the midst of depression, to make decisions based on what the Word of God says. So, and that's what we need to remember. The Bible makes that, that, you know, we're made in the image of God. We have that ability. But for the individual who's not a believer, they don't, they don't have that. They don't possess that. They don't have the Spirit of God living in them. They're unable to overcome these things on their own. Oh, they, and some may. There may be some techniques that people can use. But, you know, it's almost like the individual who uh, was the alcoholic or the individual who was strung out on drugs. Uh, they, 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 they overcome that, but now they're addicted to smoking. Or they're now addicted to this or something else. There's always something they're addicted to. And the reason for that is because there's that emptiness, uh, that craving inside of them for something bigger, for something stronger, uh, for maybe even for meaning and purpose. And sin has, has just corrupted that. Sin has just destroyed that within us. And instead of finding our way back to God or coming to God, we're going in the opposite direction. And so that's why we often use the language of God pursuing us and God finding us and God saving us because we're not going in, in that direction. So moving on to verse 22, he says uh, about individuals. So after this happens, after this empty-headed individual's heart is darkened, it says professing to be wise, they became fools. So what happens is they, they profess themselves to be intelligent. Now, I find this a little humorous, uh, but the word for wise here says professing themselves to be wise. The, the Greek word that's used there, it, it's the only time in the Bible that this word is used. It's where we get our English word moron from. So you could say professing themselves to be wise, and I, uh, they became uh, they became fools. So the, I'm sorry, I think I said the word wise was moron. It's actually the word fool. So professing themselves to be wise or intelligent, they became morons. And then he's going to explain how they became morons. So a moron then is an individual who refuses to acknowledge that God exists, whether he does it verbally or just in his life. And this individual continues to suppress the truth and his foolish heart becomes darkened. He becomes empty headed. And as a result of that, he then pronounces that he is a wise person, or at least he thinks that he's a wise person. And that individual is a moron. He becomes a moron. So when that happens, what, what does he do? I mean, what, what does this moron do in his life? How does he act? How does he behave? Well, verse 23, it tells us, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. So remember earlier, it said that, that man knew that God existed and he refused to glorify him. Then what man does is he turns right around and in verse 23, he changes the glory of God, who this knowledge he's been suppressing, he changes the glory of God, the glory of what deity should possess. And he, and he takes this idea of God, this is what he's talking about here, this idea of God, the, the idea of, of a being that is majestic, uh, the idea of a being that is powerful, and the idea of a being that should be worshipped. So he takes that idea and he changes it. He twists it because that's what sin does. Sin has corrupted the way he thinks. And so he twists it and now he turns it into an image. So that again takes us back to what we mentioned before, the study in anthropology, where you have all these various religions in the world. Where these religions come from? Well, they, they come from two, two main sources. Here he's speaking of the mind of man. Man has a desire to worship something greater than himself. 
He has a desire to worship something or to believe in something that's powerful and to believe in something that is worthy of being worshipped. That's, that's the proper response. And so man then makes an image. He uh, uh, makes an alligator and worships the alligator because it's this powerful animal that lives in the Ganges River in India. Or the man may worship uh, the eagle because the eagle flies high and she seems to be majestic. Or he worships the sun because he sees the sun rise in the morning and set in the evening and realizes the glory of the sun. So he, instead of thinking about the one who created the sun, he worships the created thing, which is, which is the sun itself. Uh, so, so I said there are two main sources of these religions. One is the, the mind of man. The other is a, a demonic um, influence. Uh, how, how the specifics of how that demonic influence work, I don't know. Uh, I do know in some cases, we'll, I'll talk about that a little later, uh, because there's some revelation about that in the writings of some individuals. But the bottom line is, is that that's the two main sources of this. And so man's desire to worship is still there. He still has this understanding that God does exist, but now he, he I guess he can't completely get rid of it, so he twists it and changes it. And so then he explains to us here what happens, that he makes him to an image and uh, the image is made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So in general, this is what man worships. He worships snakes uh, or lizards. He worships four-footed animals, whether it's a lion or whatever it happens to be. He worships birds. And he also worships man. And so you have all these stories of demigods uh, um, that um, people would worship um, in um, uh, these different uh, religions. I'm trying to get my notes here to uh, move. I got to find my mouse. There we go. Uh, in these different religions. Uh, and so whether you have demigods, like Greek mythology, you have Hercules and Zeus and you know all those things. Uh, the bottom line is that, that man is seeking to worship something that's kind of like himself or something that even he creates. And, and the Bible talks about that. You can go through uh, a couple of passages in the Old Testament where God is using reasoning uh, and logic. And, and so he, he's talking to... One of the prophets says, let me just ask some questions. He says, so a man takes, takes a log, a piece of wood, and so he carves out of that some kind of image and says, this is my God. Well, the idea there, how much sense does that make? You're trying to worship a being greater than you, but you made it. You made this image. Then you set it down, and then you take the extra and you burn it for fuel to keep you warm and to cook. So the log, this piece of wood, which is nothing, then part of it, part of the same log, you use as refuse, and the other part you use and declare that it's a majestic being that you now worship. It just doesn't make any sense. And what God is pointing out is, is well, let's look at that log. That log came from this tree. Who created the tree? Well, it's this wonderful, benevolent being, the God of the Bible. That's who you should be glorifying and worshiping. The one who made that tree grow, the one that gave you the ability to um, take that wood and build a home or to uh, make a fire to cook or, and or keep yourself warm. That's what makes sense. So man, who's now become more like a moron, this is what he does. And so as you, if you study anthropology, you'll see this in all kinds of religions uh, where, where man just has some really weird ideas about some things that he wants to worship. And they, they just don't make any sense. Not logically, anyway. Um, so moving on, 24. 
It says, therefore. Now, you've probably heard this before, that when you're reading Scripture and you have the word therefore, or what he's saying is based on what he said. So in other words, because these things are true, this is what happened, or this is what's going to happen. So it's, so it's connecting it. It's a bridge. It's kind of connecting these things. So we have the, the judgment of God in Romans chapter 1 as well. There are three times in Romans 1 where God passes an act of judgment on man. I do think it's important to point out that in each of these judgments, that these are judgments mixed with mercy. In other words, God is not giving man what he fully deserves. He is giving man an opportunity to repent. And I think that's important. Uh, I think if you go back to in the story in Genesis where Cain killed Abel, you know, there's a conversation that God has with Cain uh, after, after Abel has been murdered. And I believe that when God asked these questions of Cain, he was giving Cain an opportunity to repent. Because God already knew the answers to the questions. You know, when he asked Cain where Abel was, well, God knew where he was. He was on the ground. He was dead. But when he asked Cain the question, he was giving Cain the opportunity to fall to his knees and weep. And he could have said whatever. He, he could have said a lot of things. He could have said, he said, I am guilty. I allowed my rage uh, to overtake me. And I took his life. And I, and I plead for mercy. Because you, you, I think we can tell that through the story, God desires to show mercy. In fact, the Bible tells us that point blank. As you read through the Psalms and other places in the Old Testament, that God is a God who loves mercy. He wants to be merciful. So he's giving Cain an opportunity, and, and Cain doesn't take advantage of it. He kind of gets a smart mouth with God. You know, God says, well, your brother he says, well, am I my brother's keeper? Well, the answer is actually, yes, it is, but, you know. Um, and then when God mentions to Cain that uh, his brother's blood cries from the ground, Cain has an opportunity to, to come and and repent you know something like he i don't think that cain is thinking god doesn't know i don't know what he's thinking but he has an opportunity to repent doesn't do it in fact he um i believe even early in the story god gave cain opportunities to repent of his earlier sin of not worshiping god correctly so that so that abel would not have been murdered when he you know he, when he told cain he said uh you need you need to do what's right because if you don't Sin lies at the door and its desires for you. It wants to dominate you. And so you need to do what's right. And Cain doesn't do what's right. And he ends up killing his brother. And so then later on, even when God hands out the punishment uh, to Cain, uh, Cain complains and says the punishment is greater than he can bear. And God shows him even more mercy. He showed him mercy by not killing him then showed him even more mercy by saying that he would put a mark on him and if anybody, anybody found him, they would, they would recognize the mark and they would not kill him. So God is, is, is a God of mercy. He wants to show mercy. Uh, and man just refuses. Uh, and, and because of his rebellion, he refuses to acknowledge that. He refuses to, to seek after that because he just, he just doesn't want anything to do with God. He doesn't want a being who's telling him. We don't want someone telling us what to do. Unless God changes a heart, that's, that's what we are naturally. So again, 24, he says, Therefore, as I, as I mentioned before, there are three judgments of God, and each of those judgments are mixed with mercy, because God does not give man fully what he deserves, and is giving man an opportunity to turn uh, his life around, turn 
the direction that he's going in. So this is, this is the first judgment. So therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. So that's, that's the phrasing here. God either gives someone over or God gives them up to. So the idea is, is, is a person is choosing a, a particular sin or sins, and they're insistent on pursuing that. And so God then basically says, okay, I'm going to allow you to pursue that. Now, God, when he does that, is not condoning sin. He's not saying it's okay. What's happening is, is that God is saying, I'm going to let you pursue this because what you're going to see is that this is not satisfying. You will not be satisfied with this. You're not going to find ultimate happiness. You're not going to find ultimate meaning. What you're going to find is more frustration, anger, and loneliness, and emptiness. And as a result, you will see that and you will turn to me. That's, that's the idea here. And so, so we see that God is active in the lives of all people on the earth. In, in the lives of your friends that, you're, that you should be praying for that are not believers. God is active in their life. I don't know what your friends love, but one of the things that we can pray, and I think, this is, I think it's a very effective prayer. And when I say that, it doesn't, I'm not saying it's going to work in you know, three weeks or in three months or what have you. We, we may need to be pray, praying for certain individuals for years. But I do believe that an effective way to pray for an individual is... Uh, find out what it is that they like or find out what it is that they love uh, and then ask the Lord to, to in, in a way, turn them over to it. So it's not that we want bad things to happen to our friends, but we do want them to come to that dead end. We want that to happen. So let's say that they enjoy fishing and hunting and there's nothing wrong with fishing and hunting. So we ask that the Lord would... would uh, cause them as they go hunting and fishing that no matter how many deer they kill no matter how many wild boars they slaughter no matter how many fish they catch that at the end of the day it will be dissatisfying to them in other words they will have to force the happiness that they're having and it will be unfulfilling to them that even when they tell the stories of how they got that deer or tell their fishing stories that that as they think about it, when they've told the story, it's going to seem hollow. Because we want them to understand that obviously life is more than fishing and hunting, but, but that it's more than just the, the pleasure that they get from it. And we want them to find that dead end. Perhaps uh, they have a, a great family and, and a great uh, wife or husband. And that's a good thing. But we, we want to pray that they will find their marriage more unfulfilling. Not that we want them to get a divorce. We don't want that. But that they will recognize that ultimate meaning cannot be found in their family. Ultimate meaning cannot be found in their spouse. It cannot be found in their children. It cannot be found in their job. We want to pray for that. And so the idea then is that what we're asking God to do is to turn them over because even good moral things can become a sinful pursuit. So a man may be dedicated to his wife. That's a good moral thing. But if he is dedicated to his wife and maybe somewhere is treating her or is thinking that that is the ultimate in life or that she's going to bring ultimate meaning to his life, that see, now it's sinful because he, he wants her to do or to give him what only God can. And that becomes sin. We want that, 
that we want that to be revealed. So that's the idea then of, of praying and asking God to turn someone over. So now it could be a simple behavior as well. Maybe you have a friend who is an alcoholic or you have a friend who, who uh, is engaging in drug abuse. Well, we want to ask that God would turn them over, that God would protect their life, but that they would ultimately experience the great emptiness that those things bring. We, we know already in life experience that alcoholism and, and drug abuse are going to bring a great emptiness to that person. So what we're asking the Lord to do is to accelerate that so that it comes sooner, so that it comes quicker, so that instead of having 40 years of their life destroyed, maybe it's just 14 years of their life destroyed. And they would come to find the grace of Christ and find meaning and hope and salvation in the Lord. And so to pray that God turn someone over to whatever it is, that's a very serious thing. We should never take that lightly. Uh, but I do believe it's a very effective prayer. And so we see here that in general, in God's dealing with, with mankind, as God deals with individuals, as God deals with whole nations of people, this is what he does. And this is what he's done with man. So he says here then in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So again, there's this direct connection between what he's been talking about. So God gives man up in general to just general uncleanness. So this uncleanness is both physical and spiritual. I think I do think it's primarily spiritual uh, in this passage. So this doesn't mean that that he gave up man, he gave man up to uncleanness and man then didn't bathe or take a shower. That, that's not the kind of uncleanness. This is the spiritual and moral cleanliness that God demands and desires. So God turned man over to that. And so basically what it is, God turned man over to the lust of his heart. So that doesn't mean then that our desires are always wrong, but God turned them over to that. Saying, oh, well, you want you want to just follow your heart? Okay, go ahead. You follow your heart. And what, what will happen? Well, what will happen is they're going to begin to dishonor their own bodies. They begin to abuse themselves. And, and you can read about some of this or watch documentaries on this uh, on YouTube or whatever, uh, on, in, whether it's anthropology or history, where people in various, uh, usually it's tribal religions, but not always, where individuals will abuse their bodies to somehow uh, show that they're committed to their God or gods or to show that they're really deeply committed to their beliefs. Uh, so it may be that they cut themselves, they mutilate their bodies in some way, um, they uh, um, display themselves in some kind of strange way. Uh, the idea is, is that, that they don't show the proper honor to their body. Remember that we are created in the image of God. The whole person is. And so that's why we are to treat a person, not just their personality, but the whole person, including their body, with, with honor with respect. So here what takes place is man is suppressing this truth. He doesn't glorify God. He's not thankful. Uh, then he begins to worship idols, begins to worship himself, begins to think of demigods and those types of things. And God says, this, this, is, this is where you want to go? You, you're going to suppress what you know to be true and that's the direction? Fine. You go ahead. And he turns him over to it. So that's why he then reiterates what he said before. And what is that? That's verse 25. So these individuals that God has turned over to uncleanness 
and to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. That's what he said earlier. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So whether it's a flying bird or a four-footed beast or a creepy thing or man himself, all those things are that which has been created. And instead of man worshiping the creator of those things, he worships the created being. And so it says they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So that's the foolishness of man right there. Now, again, another comment that I just thought of where it talks about to dishonor their bodies among themselves. You know, the dishonoring of their bodies is sometimes sacrificing, uh, making human sacrifices, um, whether it's your own children or, or other people. Um, you know, I grew up in Hawaii, and one of the kings, the first king, they, they called him great. It was King Kamehameha, King Kamehameha I. He was the one who united the islands. All the islands were separate kingdoms, and he united the islands. Uh, he, when he, when he wanted to do that, he then went to a kahuna to find out what he needed to do so that he would be blessed by the gods. So this is on the big island of Hawaii. That's where the volcano is, the active volcano. And so he was told that he needed to sacrifice a relative. And so there was a large gathering at the temple. And he called his uncle to come forward. His uncle didn't know what was going on. His uncle came up and he was then bound. And King Kamehameha slaughtered him on the altar. And after that, he then took his armies and began to go from island to island to conquer the islands, uh, believing that the gods were going to bless his efforts. And he did win all the battles, slaughtering a lot of individuals because he wanted to be the king uh, over, over a united kingdom of the islands. So, again, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here, uh, that, that man uh, dishonors his body in that way. Man does the same thing now in different ways. Uh, because, again, man does worship himself, so we could talk about man's uh, quest for eternal youth or man's quest for eternal beauty. And so you've probably seen the stories of individuals who've had one or two plastic surgeries, and then after a while you have certain individuals who've had 15 or 16 or 20, individuals who've ended up in the end mutilating themselves, where they look really weird or goofy. Uh, because they're in, in pursuit of what have you. Individuals who try all kinds of weird fad diets or uh, extreme ways of living because they're looking to beat father age, you know, or father time, you know, trying to, uh, or to beat a disease, whatever it happens to be. Um, man dishonors his body uh, in, in many of these different kinds of ways. So that was the first judgment of God. And what, what that would again, should lead men to do is, is to lead men to repent, saying, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is not satisfying. Uh, I'm more frustrated than ever. And uh, again, remember, he already knows that God exists and that God is divine and should be worshipped and, and he should turn to God, but he refuses to do that. So then continuing on in verse uh, 26, he says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. So because man doesn't repent, that is the reason that God now judges a second time. And here we see God gives them up. And so it's much more targeted or much more specific. 
And it says, God gave them up before it was the lust of the hearts. Now it's to vile passions. Uh, here in particular, he's talking about sensual passions or sexual passions. He calls them vile and talks about um, what takes place in the heart and mind of the individual that he's turned these things over to. Um, I don't think that this is uh, necessarily a healthy thing to do, but if you were to study uh, sexual sin and what it does to people psychologically and what it does to them emotionally, uh, it can lead us to begin to understand the unbelievable corrupting power of sin. So we're already corrupted by sin. And then when we get involved in some sins and we pursue those sins, there's even a greater corrupting power that overcomes us, that begins to change us. And so that's going to be spoken of here in this verse and the verses to come. In these verses, this is where you have, in our country and some other countries, you have people who just do not like what the Bible says. They hate it. Uh, in some places, it's illegal even to read some of these things out loud. Uh, and we're talking about where individuals identify themselves, uh, the, all the whole transgender kind of thing, uh, homosexual behavior, lesbian behavior, um, bisexual behavior, all those things. Uh, that are that are in our world and our society and and are constantly bombarding us every day. The Bible talks about a a moral standard when it comes to sexual behavior. God created sex and the sexual relationship uh, for a husband and a wife. God wants people. He wants people to engage in sexual behavior, but it's reserved. It's, it's a sacred thing, um, and it is created for a specific relationship. And that's what makes that sexual, sexual relationship special. That's what makes the sexual relationship a glue that will bind and, and people together. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, but that's also why when people pursue sexual any kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage, it very quickly becomes empty. Uh, it becomes only about the physical act. Uh, and, and even though that may bring a lot of pleasure, after a while, it's not enough. It no longer brings the, the pleasure it did before. So the individual now wants to begin to move into other types of sexual behavior. Sometimes we'll, talk, we'll call them deviant sexual behaviors. Why is that individual doing that? Because it's, it's kind of like with the drug use. When an individual uses uh, cocaine, heroin, whatever, they may have a great trip uh, on that drug. And so what many will tell you is that every time they use the drug after that, it, it, the, the experience they have is not as great as the first one. So they're always pursuing that first one. They want to get that one again. And even if they did, that wouldn't be enough. They'd want to have it again and again and again. And so the, uh, that's why individuals may try something harder in fact, I read something very disturbing. Um, there was a, uh, uh, several years ago, there was, I, I believe it was in West Virginia, there was a particular park where people who used heroin used to hang out, and the police knew about it. And I believe it was uh, in the morning, and I don't know what day of the week, doesn't matter, several years ago, 
thir- I think it was I think the number was thirteen people, her- all heroin users, were all dead in the park same morning, and it was because of the heroin they were using. They had been spiked with fentanyl. Now fentanyl, uh, basically, I'm not using exact measurements, but what you need is like the size of a grain of sand to spike the heroin to give it a very uh, to give that heroin an incredible kick in the, in the in the life of a person when they use it. But if it has even the, the second grain of sand more, it's lethal to kill you. And you know it's you know drug dealers and those who manufacture these things aren't exactly using exact measurements. And so there was fentanyl that was being put in heroin, uh, and several people were dying as a result. One, uh, a police officer in that town was being interviewed after that incident, and he said, you know, you would think that a heroin user, when they hear about a, a, a shipment of heroin that had caused this many deaths all at once, that you would stay away from it. He says, but that didn't happen. He said, even more people came wanting that heroin. The belief was is that, wow, it killed 13 people. It must be great. Still believing that they probably themselves wouldn't die, but what was driving them was wanting to have that experience. It just it makes no sense to those who don't use drugs. To those who use drugs, it makes some kind of sense. So those 13 people dying all at once had the opposite effect that we thought it would have uh, because it caused a greater demand for this heroin that was spiked with fentanyl. So the same thing happens then when, when it comes to the sexual relationship uh, that people have is that as they pursue it, after a while, they want, they want the first experience again. They want that intensity. They want it to be new. They want it to be exciting, wild, whatever term we want to use. That's, that's the direction they're going to go in. And so, uh, and that's what sin does to you because the more diva you become, again, it's not going to be satisfying. And so you're going to want more or want it different. Uh, and so that's what he's saying here. So again, verse 26, this is what God's word says. For this reason, God gave them up, that's mankind, to vile passions. These are men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he explains what happens when he gave them up to vile passions. What happened? What took place? He says, well, first of all, women exchange the natural use of what is against nature. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, that's going to explain in verse 27. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. So he was talking about that, that, the, that the standard is men are with women and women are with men sexually. And that what was happening here is that women were using other women to satisfy themselves sexually and men were using other men. What is interesting is the is the way that this is described here uh, and some of the details you can draw out of this. So when a man is having a physical relationship with a man, not only is it not satisfying, and again, that doesn't mean that, well, we won't get into all that. Uh, we'll just say it this way. It says they burned in their lust for one another. So in the Greek language, when it says that they burned in their lust, the idea was is that they were never satisfied. That's what he's trying to get at. That in this pursuing of sexual relationship, the man pursuing other men, and even engaging in these sexual relationships, there was still this burning or this intensity of desire that was taking place because the desire was never satisfied. It was never, man, this is such a great thing, um, and I really want to be with this individual. You know, when a, the way it's supposed to work is when a man and woman get married, 
and they have a sexual relationship for the first time as a man and wife, that sexual relationship then brings them together as glue and it intensifies their love for each other. It intensifies their caring for each other. Uh, it's a very unique thing that, that takes place. God has designed sex to do that. Uh, it creates greater trust uh, for each other, you know, because there's an opening up of each person to the other person and they want to kind of do life together. That's what marriage is all about. But then outside of marriage, when these sexual relationships take place, even though some people may have those feelings to a degree, there's not that, that level of commitment is not coming both ways. And so this, there's, that's, that's the desire that they can't fulfill. So he's not saying that they cannot be fulfilled physically at all, because some of that's going on. But there's, there's more going on here when it comes to this type of behavior. And so man is affected very deeply. And that's why you'll find, and most of us are very much aware of this, that there is just an enormous amount of sexual sin in the world. It's just, it, it's corrupting. It destroys families. Children lose their moms and dads to this. Um, that's also why we have such a huge um, problem worldwide of children being kidnapped and stolen or in some countries sold by their parents. And they're sold into the sex slave market. So just so you know, slavery is alive and well. It is a multi-billion dollar business. It may be in the trillions of dollars, but I don't know. But I do know it's in the billions of dollars. And uh, there are people that are abused every day. Uh, and if it's one of those things that's difficult to think about because it's extremely depressing. And there's not a whole lot really being done. There are, I think, some who are crusading and trying their best to fight this, but it's it's a problem. And you've heard the stories in our own country. Uh, when there's a Super Bowl or some big sporting event taking place, there's buses, and in some cases, trucks being brought in with, that are filled with women and children that are going to be sold or pimped out for the various customers to do whatever they want uh, to them and with them. And it's a blight on our country, on our society. And it's that is the judgment of God. Uh, again, it's mixed with mercy because we are to realize that this, this does not bring satisfaction. Something is wrong here. Something is broken. And yet we don't go in that direction. So we're going to have to stop there for now. Uh, our time is up. And so we're going to we'll get back to it next week, do a look, kind of a quick review again, and then kind of move on through this. It's, it's a very there's a darkness here, I believe, in these verses um, as it talks about man and mankind in general. But it's a darkness that we need to understand and be aware of so that we can recognize the great need that we have for salvation and the need that we have for Christ. Uh, so I would, I would encourage you to continue to read Romans 1 a few more times during the week just so you can become intimately aware, uh, aware of it and, and kind of absorb its truths and think about it. Uh, I think it would be good for our soul and good for our understanding of, uh, of other people. So uh, let's pray and uh, I'll see you next week. Father in heaven, again, we are grateful for your kindness and your goodness and your love. We thank you, Father, again for the great truths and the very sobering truths that come out of the book of Romans. I pray, Father, that with the, the darkness and the heaviness of the things that we have been discussing and looking at, that you help us to recognize, Father, first of all, the darkness that's in each of us and the great need that we have for Christ, but also, Lord, to recognize the great darkness that is in our society, but a society that's made up of people, of people, Lord, that, that you care for and people that you desire to save. Help us, Father, to realize that the only thing strong enough to deal with all these things we've been talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So, Father, we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for uh, his willingness to die on the cross for our sin and to, and to offer us the great and the marvelous gift of salvation. We pray, Lord, that until next week, you will keep each one of us uh, safe and keep us in your word. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.